Did you grow up in the 70s, 80s, or early 90s? Then you might want to tune into Gen X Grown Up, the podcast by Gen Xers who refuse to outgrow the things they grew up loving. Join the Gen X Grown Ups each week to talk media, tech, toys, and games from yesterday and today through the eyes of Generation Xers. You can also enjoy their Backtrack episodes, where they choose a single topic, like The Walkman, and dig in deep to discuss why they remember them so fondly. To find their podcast and YouTube channel, go to genxgrownup.com. In 2017 alone, Bitcoin saw amazing swings. In September, it crashed. It lost 50% in one day. By November and then December, it doubled and neared $20,000. As you listen to this, who knows where it is? Some say it could have hit a million dollars one day. Some say Bitcoin is a bubble with no asset value and that it will crash with an ugly end. In 1987, Burma declared a bulk of its currencies worthless. 25, 35, 75 kayats, worthless. Based on superstition and numerology. <laughs> so what is this thing we call money? And how is it changing? This episode is not about Bitcoin, blockchain, cryptocurrency, the history of monetary systems, or the story of certain currencies. It's about value. And more specifically, it's about humans exchange value, the agreements we make with one another, and the subjective nature of money. This is your host, Craig James, and you're listening to Big Audacious Idea, the show that invites you to think big. From ancient philosophy to modern science, we'll explore the questions that will shape civilization for years to come. This season on Big Audacious Idea, we're examining what it means to be human and asking the questions that sometimes we forget to ask, such as, what is reality? Does time really move forward? And do we really die? Questions like these help us examine this thing called life and spark the big audacious ideas of tomorrow. Seth Godin is the author of 18 books that have been bestsellers around the world and have translated into more than 35 languages. He writes about the post-industrial revolution, the way ideas spread, marketing, and leadership. You might be familiar with his books, Lynchpin, Tribes, The Dip, and Purple Cow. The topic of money is not a simple, linear story. In today's episode, we'll investigate the topic over time. We'll look back, consider what's going on today, and imagine a thing or two about the future of this thing we call money. In addition, we'll ask, what is money? And what if it didn't exist? One cold day, I sat in a Starbucks, writing about the concept of money. A nice hot cup of coffee warmed my hands. I looked outside. On the other side of the glass was an old gent. He had a limp, a cane, and a hood over his head. One could barely see his face. An Ohio State University blanket was wrapped in a ball, and he was cuddling it like one would hold a baby or a pet. He had placed himself at a strategic corner outside the Starbucks. Business people in suits or $1,000 Canada Goose winter jackets entered and exited. The man approached many individuals. Most shook their heads negatively. Though I couldn't hear what they were saying, I could tell they said something like, nope, sorry, don't have anything. I watched this over and over until at one point, 
a well-coiffed, Chanel-adorned middle-aged woman opened up her purse. She peeled off cash and gave it to the old man. The man looked down at his palm. He counted his earnings, and soon he moved on, apparently done with this particular station. I wondered why that woman wore Chanel, and the old man clung to an OSU blanket. Why did a young gent who walked past me deserve a $1,000 winter coat? Why was the old man limping? Was he the same gent who approached me a few days ago explaining that he was a veteran? If it was him, and he did fight for our country, why was he begging in the street? I contemplated that money is not just about value, commerce, or transactions. It's also about a social societal symbol of humans and their status. Power. Privilege. Poverty. Abundance. Or lacking. Money is a symbol that is as real as it is fictional. So let's take both a material and philosophical journey into the topic of money. Well, maybe I start with Star Trek because um, they don't have any money in Star Trek. And the reason they don't have money in Star Trek is because they have these devices that can make whatever you want. And if there's no scarcity, then our narrative about scarcity goes away. Now, clearly, there's a different kind of scarcity, all the stuff you can't buy, whether you have money or not. But we, as humans, like all creatures, live in fear of starving to death, live in fear of not having enough. And what's happened in the last few hundred years is capitalism has sort of weaponized that fear, and we've turned money, that thing, the green stuff, into a symbol that encompasses so much about how we grew up and where we want to go. So money itself is a fictional thing, but the emotions that underlie it are super real. I think almost all the substantial conversations come down to fear and then move on to dignity and asset utilization and opportunity. But it's about fear. So what Facebook has done brilliantly is said, if you are afraid of what other people are saying behind your back and who isn't, we will momentarily reassure you and help that fear go away if you just check Facebook. And if you want to have more control over those conversations, you can use Facebook. And if you want to scale it, you can pay us money. So the people who use Facebook are not the users. They are the product that is being sold to marketers. And Facebook is based on fear. And so is that itch we get when we see we have an incoming text. And so is the way we feel when we're not getting paid as much as the person in the cubicle next to us. And on and on and on. That money has become a really quick, linear way to announce your fear. Throughout history, there's been amazing things that have happened. For example, back in the 1600s, you know, some guy paints a tulip bulb. Suddenly everyone wants one. The values go through the roof. There's this crazy market for tulip bulbs. And a single bulb of Semper Augustus was enough to feed, clothe, and house a Dutch family for like half a lifetime. And then, you know, the bubble bursts, the value of tulip bulbs crash, and everything changes in an instant. Families would lose their entire savings, and, and everything changed. Seth has much to share with us surrounding the origin of money and begins with what preceded it. He cites David Graeber and his book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years. 
Debt was around before barter systems, before money. The historic picture isn't necessarily pretty, but it informs how we arrive to where we are now and informs where we're going in the future. Yeah, I, I think that before we can go anywhere near crypto or the blockchain or fiat virtual currencies, I think we have to go back a long way. You and I were emailing back and forth about David Graeber, and so I think that's a good place to start. His book, Debt, is a central reading for anyone who's interested in this, but basically his argument is that all those economics textbooks that talk about the village square where someone has a deer and someone else has some eggs and they're trading the deer for the eggs and they realized that was ungainly, so they invented this other thing, a middleman that would enable trade to happen. It's all made up. There's no evidence that this ever occurred. And this is not where money came from. Where money came from is debt. Debt happened before money. And it's pretty easy to imagine how debt occurred. Somebody does something for somebody else, they owe you a favor. That favor isn't measured in simoleons or shekels. The favor is measured in culture and society and what will make us both believe we are even. And at some point, somebody had collected enough debts that they wanted to give that debt to a third person to collect so that they could get something from them. And suddenly we start trading debt. And once we begin trading debt, then we need a common number to put on a debt. And the next thing you know, we have money. And in reading some of, thanks to you, David Graeber's work, uh, what I found fascinating, and you're alluding to it very much so, and that is that this is a human dynamic. It's not about business or stuff or systems or technology necessarily. It really dips into this deeper, deeper human instinct for survival. And if I remember correctly, David speaks to the roots that aren't so pretty in some cases. That debt started with, okay, I'm going to take you guys over through conquest. Uh, we won't kill you if you pay us. And so therefore you're in debt. And we're really not dealing with the real issued hand. And that is how do we as humans figure this humanity thing out? And I think sometimes we dance around the, the deeper issues. Yeah. I mean, textbooks would like us to believe that transactions are consensual all the time and that money is this clean vehicle. But it's all built on top of non-consensual transaction. Slavery, people having a choice between feeding their family or dying, decisions that aren't really fair, honest, or ethical underpin a million years of evolution of culture. And then on top of it, sure, you've got somebody saving up their lunch money to buy a Hermes Birkin bag, but those transactions are fairly modern. So when we think about money, most people associate it with shame and with insufficiency and ultimately with death. And the way we act that out is fascinating. So I'll give you two examples. One is that lots of people want to be in debt. Debt is safer than being in surplus. Because if you're in debt, it's like having a job. You work for the person you owe the money to. The boundaries are set. Whereas when you're in surplus, you have to figure out a worthwhile thing to do next. And each has an appeal to different people. But it's not an accident that things like payday loans exist. It's not an accident that the credit card companies make billions of dollars a year in profit. That's because we're hooked on being behind the eight ball. And we need to be clear about that. And then the other thing is a, a colleague of mine 
grew up in a family that was always having their car repossessed, always having to move from house to house. And if you think you can grow up that way and then at 30 do business like a rational Harvard Business School MBA, you're crazy. That that narrative keeps coming up. That idea that a dollar amount says something about who you are as a human and whether you're going to be able to sleep through the night and take care of your family, it keeps coming back to that again and again. I had uh, another friend reference to this whole concept and he asked the question, is this just all a scheme? Is money, the idea of money, a Ponzi scheme? And he really got me thinking. And then further, he, he begged the question about what is the story that we tell ourselves about the scheme of money? And it makes me think about some of your musings maybe a few years back. I think you put out like 17 points on money. And you talked about not only the story, but the emotional relationship we have with, the relationship with money. And I think you said, if someone's good at building houses, they don't have an emotional relationship with a hammer. But we have these, these guttural, visceral relationships with money. And maybe we need to get that straight and realize that it's not about the money. It's about the story we tell ourselves and the emotion we have around it. Yeah, you packed a lot into that. So I would begin with this. Doug Roshkoff has written controversially and I think brilliantly about central banking being a scheme. That during the Middle Ages, money never left your village. And as soon as you centralize it, what you do is you give power to the person who can use the centralized currency to collect taxes. And you create these transactions where value keeps going back to the center. And there's nothing wrong with that because it got us, you know, Lego and malaria drugs. But there is something to understand that that is not fundamental human nature. And that this movement to central currency has been a move to a global community away from a village community. And you get advantages with that and disadvantages with that. But then you also have people who care about money, who get paid more money by manipulating money at our expense. And that's what my post from June 30th of 2013 was about, which is that the people who do that have created an environment where a bigger house is worth more than a smaller house, an environment where the reason we have a front lawn, most people don't know this, is to tell our neighbors that we are rich enough to afford wasting a lot of land. That's why it was invented. So we do all these things to put on a show for other people so that marketers and central bankers can make more of a profit. Hmm. Which this parlays nicely perhaps into your most recent works, Seth, that have to do with, again, the shift from central to individual, from top-down industrial complex to we're all producers and consumers at the same time. And, and it's been interesting to hear, I might even suggest your plea to people, please realize this golden moment in which we live to create great value, do your work and take it to the world like never before. And yet we still are in the old modalities of, I have to ask permission, comply to the cog and be a cog in a wheel versus a creator thinker. Uh, share some of that with us, if you would. Well, 13 years of brainwashing has a lot of benefit for the brainwasher. And one of the things they brainwashed us into doing was asking, will this be on the test? That if we want to train people to comply, then we have to make it clear to them what they're supposed to comply to. And if we want to train people to be compliant cogs in an industrial system, we need to give them work where they can be a compliant cog. And so part of the economic breakdown we're facing right now is we don't have work for those people, 
And so the social contract is broken. The social contract was do what you're told, get an A, you can get a job at the placement office. And once you get a job at the placement office, you'll have it forever, as long as you keep doing what you're told. And that's just bogus. And it was sort of true before, but it's not true now. But we're deeply ingrained with this idea that we should look for the instructions and do a good job and follow them. But that's not who's getting rewarded. That's not who is finding freedom or leverage or happiness in a society that's based on economics. The people who are winning are ones who don't wait for a rule book, but who are writing a rule book. And it doesn't have to be at a global scale. It could be at the tiniest scale. But if you become the employee they can't live without, you are way more likely to get what you deserve. So at this point in our conversation, Seth, I'm, I'm tempted to say, hmm, let's have a little fun and dream about what might be. Given these changes, good or bad, whatever the judgment, what's the future hold? And neither of us have some magic crystal ball, but maybe we could talk about that a bit. But first, if I may, given what you just described, that we're not to comply, to be the cog in the wheel, but inventors and creators and do our work, what would be your challenge? So, so what does one do to break out of some of the perhaps ingrained, brainwashed mindsets that we have? How do we break out of that? My favorite shortcut is generosity. If you can find someone you can be generous to with your effort, with your insight, it helps you get over the fear because you don't have to feel like you're doing it selfishly for yourself. You can do it for someone else. The second thing is to learn to sell. doesn't matter what you're selling, but sell something without a manual. Sell it on your own behalf, not for Amway or Starbucks. If you can be generous and you can sell, then the door is open for you to be generous for more people and to get compensated for it by bringing value to people who will pay you in return. And that's where freedom is, right? If you're an artist and you depend on the NEA for a grant, well, then you're not free. But if you're an artist in whatever format, I'm not talking about painters, and you can find a marketplace that wants you to make more of it, then you're in charge. So we've evolved our systems of money and value based on a certain subjective reality, a set of agreements that man makes with one another. How might that continue or change? Money is a fictional thing. It's a symbol. But the emotion of money is very real. Money can be a powerful thing. It's a transfer of value and energy. It's visceral. It's about survival. As Peter Diamandis points out in his book Bold and his associated blog posts, the very idea of capital is changing, as is the overall idea of money. It's a unique time right now. He points out that venture funding for entrepreneurs is at a tipping point for the advent of new technologies such as crowdfunding. Crowdfunding has exploded in 2017, exceeding $16 billion. Kickstarter has launched nearly 400,000 projects, and one project alone called Pebble Time raised $20 million in just 37 days. What's interesting about crowdfunding and things like cryptocurrency is that both are democratizing and decentralizing funding. This opens options for entrepreneurs and investors, yes, but it also shifts power away from the hierarchy that has otherwise dominated recent history. 
It also forces one to ponder what we value and why. A friend of mine challenged me to think about this subjective judgment. He asked me to think about the volunteer who helped save lives during the natural disasters of 2017, such as Hurricane Harvey. The volunteer may have been paid little or no money. Does this mean they're of no value while they saved lives? Jeff Bezos, during the 2017 holiday season, is estimated to have increased his net worth by $100 billion. Now, is Jeff 100 billion times more valuable than the volunteer? Let's hear from Seth. I I remember getting in trouble when I was in 10th grade. I had a Spanish teacher who wasn't very nice, and I had suffered a concussion the day before. And I said in class, I'm sorry, I couldn't do my Spanish homework. I had a concussion. And the Spanish teacher started going on about how he thought it was unlikely that the accident that had occurred to me had caused a concussion. And I turned to him and I said, yeah, well, the doctor gets paid a lot more than you do. And even as I said it, I realized it was an absurd statement because there are lots of things in society that cost more or less, but that doesn't mean they're better or worse. That to say to the Spanish teacher, well, the doctor trained for six years and has interned for seven, that would be a reasonable thing to say. But I think we all know that if the people at the water purification plant stopped going to work for a week, we would miss them far out of balance with how much money they get paid. Our associations with money matter. We need to realize what we really want, what we seek, and what we feel about money. More doesn't mean better. Less doesn't mean worse. In the book, Energy of Money, Maria Nemeth encourages us to be real with our relationship with money and to realize that our narrative around money drives our lives and that our metaphysical relationship with money, i.e. how we feel about it, then migrates into the physical realm. Outside of democratized and decentralized wealth, there's also the ironic emergence of centralized sovereign wealth funds, or SWFs. Essentially, governments investing in private businesses. Now, this offers a new promise to startups. For example, a huge fund, SoftBank Vision Fund, is backed by two sovereign nations, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. The $100 billion SoftBank plans to invest over $1 billion in Uber when it goes public. And overall, sovereign wealth funds run over $6.5 trillion in assets. So how might the future of money define some of our social systems? We're looking at the paradox of decentralized wealth and sovereign wealth funds emerging simultaneously. Seth, where do you see the future of money? Yeah, so it begins with Lewis Hyde's book, which I'm looking at right now, called The Gift, which is pretty deep. It's the man's life work. He begins by exploring gifts in a pre-currency setting as a form of status exchange and creation of debt, all the way up to Potlatch in the Pacific Northwest, where Indian tribes would compete to give away everything they own to someone else, so the person would then be in their debt. But it goes beyond that. And here's a a simple way to think about it. If your sister needs a loan, you don't charge her interest. Because charging someone interest pushes people apart, it makes it a business transaction. The prescription against usury in the Bible was pretty clear, which is you couldn't charge interest to someone in the tribe. You could charge interest to a stranger because it pushes people apart. 
But if you loan someone money, it's a gift in the sense that you're letting them use it and they give it back when they are done. If you loan someone a cow, they feed it, they keep the milk, they give it back when they're done. This is what weaves us together. This exchange without looking for recompense. This invisible ledger where we're not saying, now you owe me, but we do know that by doing these things, we are forced to see each other. And as a result of seeing each other, we become closer. So back again, we go to the roots of human nature, what makes us human, how we do or don't work together. It's a matter of fact, it's even an odd poignant moment to think that we're academically in many respects talking about the idea of value and money while three hurricanes rage in the Atlantic. And, you know, 50,000 years ago, if two guys want to pick a fight, maybe they throw a rock and someone gets hurt. But now, you know, rocks are H-bombs. There's, there's a lot at stake here, I would suggest, that does relate to this exploratory conversation we're having. And what does the future hold is based on what we do, how we choose to interact, our value system, not just value, but values around gifting, caring, collaborating, or fighting. It's an amazing moment in history right now, an inflection point, I think, we get to live in it. We do. The world's so much better off than it was in 1960-something when we had the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, if you listen to Hardcore History's episode about that, you will not sleep for days afterwards. But we're always, my entire lifetime, been one heartbeat away from that being the end of it. So given that we're all going to die anyway, it reinforces our need to just live right now and to do it as generously as we can to weave together this net. Because it turns out, the more you know your neighbor, the less likely it is you're going to hate them. I understand that it was the Egyptians that said, you know, thousands of years ago, hmm, this gold stuff, let's say one unit of gold equals 2.5 units of silver. And there was suddenly this exchange of value. Imagine that. You know, so what are we going to invent in the future, I wonder, I just ponder? Yeah. I mean, we'll uh, invent beanie babies. Oh, we already did. Um, we'll invent Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin, some people say that something is different for everyone who sees it and whatever you want it to be, that's what it is. And I would say that Bitcoin fits that description in that it's wildly misunderstood about what's going on there. But what is happening is there's this real need among the nerdigencia to create a fast way to not only make transactions happen that are secure, but track them. And the same way that email fundamentally changed the way we thought of mail, Bitcoin and the blockchain fundamentally changed the way we think of transactions. And the transactions do not have to be for money because it's really hard to do a, a money transaction for less than a penny. But it's really easy to do a Bitcoin transaction for a millionth of a penny just so that we can keep track of what happened. And this idea that we can keep track and that we can, once we know when and where things are happening, cause other things to happen as a result, suddenly whole new layers of instantiation, whole new layers of interactions are going to occur that don't match what we thought we were doing when we were touching money. So this, once again, goes full circle back to how we exchange, how we exchange value, how we transact for physical stuff. And maybe how we exchange ideas. Tell us a little bit about your thoughts on idea exchange. 
Yeah, that was me in Unleashing the Idea Virus. And I said, if you have a factory and everyone takes a sample, you're bankrupt. But if you have an idea factory and everyone takes a sample, you're rich. That we don't have a piracy problem, most of us. We have an obscurity problem. That if you are known and trusted, value exists. Whereas if you hoard your idea and no one even knows you have it, no value exists. So ideas are not like stuff. They're fundamentally different. Technology is an idea. There are many variations of technology. Kevin Kelly has written beautifully that technology might be seen as its own species that is evolving for its own goals, that happens to use human beings as the host. And that if we think about ideas the way Richard Dawkins thinks about genes and watch them evolve over time as they spread or fade, the whole world looks different. And our job isn't to put an idea under glass and force it to stay still. Our job is to dance with and multiply an idea until it creates value. People frequently come to me with what they think is the original idea of a business that would pay other people for their attention. So the idea would be that instead of paying money for a stamp that goes to the post office, the recipient would get the money for reading the thing that is inside. And first I point out that I don't review ideas. And then I point out that the idea has been said a thousand times before. And then I point out it's not going to work. And the reason it's not going to work is you don't know if you even want to look at the idea until you know what the idea is. And that there's a market, if there's a marketplace for it, only the worst ideas are going to pay money for your attention because they're the only people who can afford it. And as we enter an idea economy, it's based on attention and trust, but attention does not scale. There's no inflation of intention. You can't make more of it. And every day we get to reset, but every day it gets more valuable. So what we have to choose to do if we want to make change happen is earn attention, earn it regularly, and do something useful with it. So Seth, can you leave our listeners with a final call to action? Well, my friend Lisa Gansky wrote a book called The Mesh, and it's a brilliant insight about you know, one reason we needed to own so much stuff is it's really hard to tell where other people's stuff is. So it's hard to borrow. Also, it's hard to trust. But if we can trust and know, and I would say Airbnb is an example of this, then we can get significant asset utilization by connecting. And there are people who only live in Airbnb year-round, moving around. Why own a home? Why own a car? and go down the list, that the things that people spend the most effort to own go away if we get smart about collaborating. Also, if we move toward an economy based on ideas and attention, again, they get better when we share them, when we mesh them up. So it's entirely possible to imagine that as we get closer and closer to a world where robots make most stuff and where atomic manipulation lets us make almost all raw materials really cheap. What are we going to do all day? Well, I think what we're going to do all day is connect. And some of the future of money that I've researched is quite fascinating to your point of community and connection in the connected economy. And that is that a given community makes up their own currency. And that increasingly one predicted in The Economist that uh, we'll see a great trend of the currency and money per se is not necessarily about a bank an institution or a government, 
but a community. And that community could be a religious group. Who knows what the future holds in many ways? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to be really careful because the word money is so confusing because you think of George Washington or Harriet Tubman. That's not what money is. I think that the denomination is going to get ever more centralized, whether it's US dollars or Bitcoin. But that's not what people keep track of most of the time. We keep track of status and debts. And sometimes status and debts are measured in dollars, but they're usually measured in some other way. And it could be something as simple as, well, you held the door open for me on my way into the building, so I'll hold the door open for you, all the way to Oprah will put you on her show because she had a really nice dinner with you at Sheryl Sandberg's house two weeks ago because Ariana introduced you guys to each other. And no one paid anyone, but still there was currency and connection. And Seth, the question, of course, goes to you. What are some of the things that you'd say, Craig, you know, great job taking me all over the planet today, um, but we missed X, Y, and Z of that. I'd love to talk about anything that's on your mind. Um, well, I, I guess the one thing that I would throw in to your earlier comment about Bitcoin at the beginning is you will almost never meet someone who got rich being a day trader, not in a consistent way. And if someone offers you something that's too good to be true, that doesn't require you to engage in creating value, then it's almost certainly too good to be true. And we need to be very careful about the kind of speculation that goes on once it's all just numbers on a screen. Because then we've stopped being human and we're just playing this weird game that we don't really understand. Will we ever get rid of money? Will it go away? Could it go away? Yeah, I don't think it's going to go away in my lifetime. I think that the earth is going to melt and we will be surrounded by biblical floods before money goes away. But I've been wrong before. I really encourage you to heed Seth's advice, and I hope that you will continue to explore topics like those we discussed today. We must continue to ask these questions about the future so that we can prepare to approach new technologies with an eye of generosity and benevolence. This conversation has been a useful one, not only thought-provoking, but contributory to the overall season theme, ideas. If we can turn ideas into value, new forms and measures of value, then ideas can help us invent our reality in new ways. As we end our stirring discussion on money, it's not going to be a surprise that we'll be covering the topic of time in next week's episode. After all, time and money go hand in hand. We'll be joined by an expert in the field, Alan Burdick, who has authored the book, Why Time Flies, a mostly scientific investigation. Alan is a former staff writer for The New Yorker, and editor for its science and tech blog. He'll bring us through the many twists and turns of time, forward, backward, and in between. Please join us for next week's episode about time. This is your host and co-executive producer, Craig James, and you've been listening to Big Audacious Idea, the show that invites you to think big. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us an iTunes review. It really helps. A special thank you to my co-executive producers, Joan Andrews and Michael D'Aloya. Producer, Bridget Coyne. Editor, Julie Fink. Audio engineers, Eric Coltnow and Andrew Balserzak. Music director, David Allen Moss. 
Big Audacious Idea is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and Front Porch Media. Find us on your favorite podcast app or go to evergreenpodcasts.com. Big Audacious Idea. See the big picture. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found, and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.